Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas can shape markets. Ideas can change the world. Well, we're all sitting in this incredible vortex of violence. More than ever, it seems to be the nightly news. And it's always a violent activity. I don't even like to say act, uh, active shooter. I don't like to say uh, uh, mass shooting event. It's, you, it's a perpetrator out of hate, out of violence, ideologically based, going after a segment of our population. And uh, it's, it's nerve wracking. The basis of any civil society, of course, is law and order and a feeling of safety and security. So one of the, one of the groups who is most prone to this, in fact, the most targeted religious group in our country, even though it only represents 2% of the population, but 60% of the hate crimes are the Jewish people. So why not go to the source of their advisory uh, in uh, helping them uh, uh, understand strategically how to protect themselves. We have Patrick Daly, the Principal Deputy Directory, Director and Chief Operating Officer of the Security Community Network. Patrick, great having you on the, on the great conversation. Ron, appreciate it. Uh, it's a privilege to be connected again and, uh, and be here, part of this conversation, and certainly talk about um, you know, our, our experiences and, and what you appropriately described as really what we're seeing as a you know, systemic problem of, of hate-based violence, violent extremism, and, and targeting, targeting communities across our country. It's just, it's just incredible, isn't it? Um, let's describe something. First of all, you and I had the ability to meet in Austin, Texas. We are drawn to an event that was a protective intelligence event. And, uh, and, and a lot of interesting brain trust around that term. So I thought the first thing we could do is maybe understand from your perspective what protective intelligence is and why you were drawn to that event. Sure. Um, no, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting question and really concept, right? This is, as we talked to, you know, kind of informally and formally, you know, protective intelligence is, is not a new term or it's not a new concept, but it's one that's not widely known. I think um, in recent years, because of the, the persistent, the complex and, and uh, really complex threat dynamic we've seen both from international and also domestic terrorism groups, the speed at which threat moves is faster than traditional intelligence. Um, and I think that has moved us into a place. I think it's been, I think it's been there, but I think it's been modified and um, really exacerbated by the pandemic. Is we've seen a lot of movement of this hate and violent and telegraphing and violent intent online, um, and that requires yes, traditional intelligence analysis and collection methods, but really the introduction and use of technology and platforms to really be able to find some of those those hate actors, some of those threat vectors and really tie intelligence to protectees and protected targets. And that's really you know, how I look at protective intelligence. It's very specifically looking at known or potential threat actors that have reason, belief, ideology, inspiration, or incitement to target a very specific place or group of people. And when you're looking at the ability to protect those people and those places, 
understanding who those folks are, what they're saying, where they operate, and how they operate um, is critically important to the protection strategies. Absolutely. And we can see it's it's fairly complex to solve that problem because it's it's one thing to say, I can aggregate that information. But as we learn from the recent Buffalo incident, that information is out there in various places. It does have to be captured. It does have to be organized. But most importantly, it has to be reported and communicated. And it's falling through the cracks. We know that every time it's falling through the cracks. So here comes the advent of the platform that supposedly can aggregate, organize, manage, and report. Tell me what we learned at this uh, Protective Intelligence Summit that was hosted by one of the platform players. Sure. I, I think, you know, one comment on, on, on your observation, I think the reality is the sheer volume and spaces in which this, this hate and rhetoric and conversation and folks are gathering um, is, is really unprecedented. We've, we've seen a move and shift from uh, policing on mainstream platforms, which is, is great. It's important. It's removing some of that hate offline, but it's pushed, it's pushed some of those actors into other spaces, whether it's, you know, the 4chans, the 8chans, Discord, some dark web, some other, um, you know, kind of password protected channels. So it's harder to see where this activity is occurring. But at the same time, it's creating a, a more virulent echo chamber because these folks, as we used to see gathering in fields under white hoods, um, you know, when you look at it, a KKK, um, um, you know, analogy, we've seen a, a, a more kind of clandestine gathering in those spaces. But at the same time, and this is an important distinction, at the same time, we've seen more of a mainstream acceptance or at least tolerance of some of this white supremacist neo-Nazi activity um, on, our, on our streets. For example, when we look at the Unite the Right rally in 2017 in Charlottesville, um, you know, we had neo-Nazis, the so-called alt-right, their, their kind of softer rebranding of themselves to be able to be mainstream, marching on a college campus in, in khakis and polo shirts. So it really is an interesting dichotomy of, of the hate in your face, but also some of the, um, the more um, violent intent people that kind of are gathering online where they're actually telegraphing threats. So uh, one of the, the challenges with that sheer volume and what we've discovered is an ability to kind of triage and assess that information. And one of the activities that SCN has, has taken with several technology partners, working officially with, with our DHS and FBI colleagues in a kind of consultative advisory uh, capacity, recognizing that our federal partners have limits on what they can do based on First Amendment rights, right? Capacity, capability, legal restrictions around things that may not be illegal to say online, uh, but certainly can inspire and, uh, and incite and motivate hate and violence. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you know, incitement is not a, a, not a crime from the standpoint of, of that type of uh, violence. Um, one of the things that SCN did is, is we launched a platform called Project RAIN, the Real-Time Actionable Intelligence Network. And where we sit at the, the nexus of no, more than 50 federation-based security programs in the country, it is our role to be the clearinghouse, the, the first watch, so to speak, um, information sharing partner with our federal, state, and local law enforcement partners to be able to, one, identify some of those threats proactively. And we do that through a variety of platforms, and I'll describe those in a little more detail. And two, really be that clearinghouse for incident reports coming in nationally, whether it's a, a hate incident that we're working close with our ADL partners on, whether it is a potential threat 
that we are running down either federally with our FBI partners or locally with, with local law enforcement security. It's critically important that we have our finger on the pulse and try to get ahead of some of these rather than be in a responsive and reactive way. Absolutely. So this is exciting. I think we just keep going, Patrick. Uh, I'd love to hear how that works. Sure. So there's a couple different components, and we looked at this very much from a capabilities needs requirement, right? There's a lot of great technology partners out there, um, but for us, it's important to be agnostic and objective in our assessment of this platform. So one, recognizing the ability to see, hear, and find some of these needles within needles of haystacks that we uh, that we talk about, just the sheer volume of this information. Um, so really being able to have that um, open source mainstream media, social media platform, deep dark web capability to be able to, to find some of these threat actors and, and monitor uh, their communications and what they're looking at. Um, oftentimes we'll be able to see um, information that is potentially uh, life-threatening, threat to life safety that we are passing along to our federal partners for assessment action. Um, we're very much an intelligence clearinghouse. We are not a law enforcement agency. So we're passing along that information to those that um, you know, have professional responsibility to do that. I think the other piece that's critically important is you look at the you look at the landscape of the Jewish community and where they're gathering, where they're praying, where they're um, going to to day camp or, or coming up on summer camp season. We're doing a tremendous amount of training in that space. Is really having a recognition and a visualization of where all your assets are. We're looking at north of ten to twelve thousand brick and mortar assets that we're that we're monitoring, and that takes technology to do that. So the ability to geolocate and geofence assets to determine when a threat actor or when an incident crosses those spaces um, to alert us. So we're not looking at 12,000 assets. We're looking at maybe 100 that have something going on. And some of those might be something as simple as, as an all hazards type of event, like a hurricane approaching, um, uh, you know, a, a suspicious package, but also uh, where we're seeing an active shooter event in proximity. And that alerting capability gives, gives our team of analysts and watch officers at our headquarters the ability to respond, the ability to notify that facility or support that facility um, if it's an active incident, and also the ability to share information with our, with our law enforcement partners. I think the third kind of component to that, there's, there's a lot more detail, but I know we'll kind of just touch the surface today, is really understanding who these threat actors are and where their linkages lie. Traditionally, some of the loudest... Um, bad guys, technical term, are not the ones actually doing the, the violent action. They are the ones that are either inspiring or there's a second or third kind of tier or linkage to those that might actually be inspired or incited by, by that individual or that group. So really having the capability to you know, identify, verify who these people are, where they are, um, and have that ability to, to create linkages and then notify. Um, I'll give one example. We've had a bad actor that may have called three or four Jewish federations in various states. It's only through our information sharing and discussions with those security directors, doing that intelligence analysis, supporting the FBI's investigation, that we put these linkages together, determined through one of our platforms when this person was incarcerated and released, and were able to get a local stay on his arrest so the FBI could um, you know, put some charges in place and ensure that he wasn't walking out the door the next day. Wow. That's incredible. So let me get this. I, I, I'm going to repeat this in simple terms. You can do things that the Fed government and the agencies can't. Correct. Right. Which means you can, through your technology, 
aggregate information around people, identifying people who are either the root, I love the root cause here, by the way, who are inspiring these events, who are listening to these people and where they're located in proximity to your community. Did I get that right? Correct. It's a good, it's a good, I don't mean simplification in a negative way. It's a good, good way to, uh, you know, describe it. I think the end of the day for us to be able to create a, a common operating picture as we use the term in the industry, which is, you know, aptly a single pane of glass where all these components are coming together. And we talked about that a lot at the summit, right? The ability to pull in loads of information through different channels and ensure that all of these pieces are talking to each other and they complement each other. So that, I think that that hits the point where our people are, where the risks are, where the bad actors are, and where those incidents may or do converge, that gives us an ability to see in action. Right. And do you believe, <clears throat> give us a state of the technology picture right now. It's, you know, we, we hear so much blather all the time about AI and, you know, the promise of these kind of aggregation engines, and usually the promise out outperforms the actuality. Where are we really? We heard an incredible vision of where this could go with Manish Mehta's presentation on the interstate highway. It was an absolutely great analog. Where are we on that in your opinion? Help us, if I was working with you and we had unlimited budget right now, how, how do we evaluate the platforms and their ability to connect to each other? And what do each of these platforms do? Sure, so without disclosing any gaps or deficiencies and capabilities that exist right, because right. of technology, um, you know, a couple comments and I'll, I hope I answer your question. If you don't, if I don't, you know, please, please reframe it. I think two things come to mind, um, which I think are, are, are noteworthy. One, I think that the balance between privacy and access um, and what I mean by that, and we started to have the conversation in some circles around um, encryption, right? The encryption capability technology is, is helpful on a consumer side. It's problematic on an investigation of law enforcement side, right? So, you know, striking good balance there. I think one of the other more controversial capabilities that is critically important for the right people to come together and find a good way to get better with the technology, but also you know, really resolve the privacy issue is around facial recognition. Um, we know that uh, that studies have shown that facial recognition is, is problematic with certain races and ethnicities and how they look. It is not wholly accurate there, which I agree that's a huge problem. I think when it is completely restricted and limited from any private sector use or application, there's been recent lawsuits and changes in um, private sector companies being able to provide facial recognition outside of law enforcement, um, while I agree there's there needs to be significant restrictions in use cases, I think it's it's a problem when it's it's an all or nothing. And I'll give a good example of that. Um, a lot of these conversations were occurring before January 6th last year, and we all know what happened there. It was, it was a travesty event that required significant investigation. Um, the day after that event, there was a massive call out for people that could identify hundreds and hundreds of people. And some of it was, was grainy still images, some of it was video. Um, and I know a lot of private sector nonprofit organizations were deeply immersed in that work. I think some of it was limited by the inability to have some of the right tools. 
<laughs> Again, this is really interesting. I, I hate to jump to a conclusion here. Um, and I mentioned this on other podcasts. I was asked on a vacation by an Australian, what's the greatest threat in the world? He wanted a, an American view on it. And I said, you'll, you'll probably uh, be interested that this is different than what you'll hear from most Americans. The greatest threat right now is the belief that democracy isn't as efficient, organized, timely, and relevant as an autocratic government. And you know, as, so when you bring up these issues, I'm kind of smiling to myself on American innovation here. I think what you just said is, yes, we have very important rights. Uh, but private citizens, when those rights interfere with our government being able to act, private citizens can take that on their own. So the private citizens jumped in, took their cameras, right? Took, took the Facebook posts, took the YouTube videos, and began informing on their uh, fellow citizens, which is completely, uh, completely legal. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, listen, it, it's it's complicated, right? And it's even mirrored even more by state and local laws. I mean, some of the, you know the local laws, particularly what we've just seen in a settlement related to a, a vendor in use in in you know one particular state, their restrictions were even more so than the federal government, where you know there's restrictions around pulling public images offline and using them for for certain types of activities. So you know, I think it, it comes down to the balance argument, right? Within the confines of the law. So long as these private citizens are not infringing on others' um, you know, rights within that legal space, I think absolutely that um, you know, this is where um, you know, we know government is not always forward-leaning and innovative. Some of it is, is just their hands are tied for bureaucracy. Some of it is they need to operate inside the, the law when we talk about First Amendment things. But I think that then we need to look at alternatives and not talking about agent of government but looking at about alternative opportunities where private sector NGO partners, and we see a lot of public private sector models in a variety of spaces are working together to solve these issues. Um, you know, we're not restricted by some of the same things. So again, within the proper procedures and protocols, being able to support some of that work and having the tools that are um, disposal to assist with this threat is critical. I'll just end on one point. Um, you know, two years ago, the FBI had a thousand domestic terrorism investigations open. Um, you know, we met with the deputy director last week in DC. There's 2,000, 2,500 now open. Um, I, I know that the FBI budget has increased. I'm certain they've not doubled the number of agents across the entire bureau um, working on DT issues. So this is a this is a massive problem we have as a society, and I think it's going to take a whole of society partnership approach to, to resolve it. So let's go back to the technology fair play here, because you've had to evaluate so many tools, so many different platforms. People don't realize what you have to do to be able to serve, um, to fulfill the mission that you have set out. So to put this in perspective, what I've heard is we do have platforms that can collect very efficiently this information, right? Including the dark web. Is that correct? We correct. have... So we have platforms that can do that today. We uh, have platforms that can curate it, manage it, report it, uh, can, uh, can deploy uh, other technology that's out there, actually gain access to it, like surveillance cameras, for example, right? 
and geolocation capability, and even uh, machine learning and AI to make it more automatic. Uh, uh, so we're there, right? We are there. I think we're getting there. Um, you know, on the, on the last two pieces, which which are critical, if I can, you know, take liberty at answering your question a different way. If there's something I would like to see that we don't really see right now is. I, and, and a lot of this comes from data, right? It takes a lot of data for AI and machine learning to really actually make use of that. Um, one of the one of the pieces I think we've we've had a challenge with in some of the platforms is seemingly unrelated events not having a correlative capability within a platform. And that just takes either you know a human eye with some of that tradecraft or some of this AI and machine learning to kind of start to catch up. I'll give an example of that. We had a um, we had a shooting that happened in Denver about two years ago, um, ended with the, the fatal shooting of a, of a yeshiva student just inside his um, in, inside of school. Um, it began with a multi-location crime spree around the city to include carjackings, um, um, some, some muggings at different sites, and you know, ending with that. Now, that's a really difficult problem to solve with technology. But if you're looking at time and space and you're seeing some of these things happen, and I'm not saying that's going to be result in one incident, but you know, getting the getting some of the technology to start to have a correlative capability of seeing different pieces and either you know flagging, a, let's call it a geometric space where you know you're seeing a in real time this flashpoint of activity um, that could potentially um, you know result in, in a problem for one of your assets within that that geofence. So. Um, it's not a, not a clean, not a clean ask, but, um, you know, those that we've talked to kind of know what we've, what we're looking for. And I think that would be, um, monumental in starting to get to a place where right now we've largely been responsive. Our move to technology with project rain has been one that's put in, put us in a proactive space. And I think, you know, the next logical step for some of this is to get us into a predictive space, not a minority report predictive space, but you know, some space in between where we're starting to see, similar to how law enforcement invented and, and utilized CompStat um, and understanding where things might happen based on years and years of data. I think that is the next kind of horizon and frontier to kind of really figure out where we might see bad things happen based on a lot of space and time. One problem with that, and I recognize is the, the very different paths to mobilization to violence for individuals. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about a whole cloth solution, but I think when it comes to spaces where we've seen problems or potentially foresee problems, um, I think it would be another another good tool. What a what a beautiful layout. I'm just gonna summarize what I just heard. We we for years, using that term protective intelligence, have been responsive. Um, we have been able to collect data manually, sticky notes, Excel spreadsheets we've been able to manually correlate that data, but unfortunately, because of the analog nature of that, that has been slow and uh, unnervingly slow in protecting our people. So uh, it's probably been more uh, attractive forensically than it has in helping people plan for those incidents. We're now in the proactive mode we're starting to aggregate the right data and make it available almost real time, uh, but we're still relying on aspects of it for the human being to make those connections. So there's somebody 
if you're selling a service out there that uses these platforms or you're using it internally, you better have staff to be able to make those correlations. Is that what I just heard? Yeah, and it's challenging, right? It's it's it might be a bit of a unicorn, and even thinking about it, requesting it. So I'll give you another example. Um, you know, there there's still deficiencies with with the 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 supply chain, or wrong wrong term, but um, the actual the, the chain of, of of events that would need to occur, right? So if we look at if we look at um, the Poway shooter um, in just outside of San Diego, where we had an individual, he posted a manifesto online prior to going into that synagogue that day. The manifesto was seen by some enterprising person that was looking at the right place at the right time and actually called the FBI tip line. Um, the speed at which that was posted, discovered and reported was unprecedented. The problem is, you don't know where the individual is. The person's still in motion. Um, so I think we've gotten a lot better and we're getting a lot better. And I don't think for a second we're going to stop every one of these. But I think we do have an opportunity and we have seen opportunities um, where we have either interdicted or potentially prevented. You know, you and I both know that deterrence is nearly impossible to measure. And whether or not you actually really stop something um, is tough to say as well. But you know, based on the reports and the tips, which we're doing dozens a week, hundreds a year uh, on potential life safety events that we're sharing with our federal partners, there is no doubt in my mind that that proactive work and looking at people that are saying really bad things about violent intent has has stopped stopped perpetrators and saved lives. Can you give us any type of data on that, like measurements of any type? I can... I can tell you for certain that arrests have been made and knock and talks have been made um, based on information we've provided. Um, again, you, you can never say with certainty if that person was actually going to walk in and pull the trigger, right? Until they do. Um, but you know, quantitatively, I, I, I can't give you a firm number on on how many of those cases have been stopped. But um, I know I think the one thing that concerns us is um, the amount of things we're doing. And the amount of things we're seeing, there's a tremendous amount of things that we just are not seeing and no one has the bandwidth to kind of uh, be able to look at all of it. And those are the ones that are getting through and getting by. Let's uh, let's wrap this up, uh, kind of put a, I, this has been such a great conversation, Patrick, but help me out. You, before we got on this call, you told me you had worked through the weekend. I bet there's many times you have said that. <laughs> So, so given what you're seeing and your participation with other thought leaders in this space at events like the Protective Intelligence Summit, what give me give me your 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 foresight here? What what are we looking like in a year? Well, that's a big question to end on. Um, you know, I I. I Unfortunately, um, you know, and we keep hearing this every time we meet with our federal partners and, and it's, it's a line I've, I've, you know, pretty much memorized is that we're in the most complex, dynamic and persistent threat environment that we've ever been in. And the sad truth is that statement is true every time it's said, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, we had four fatal attacks against the Jewish community in under 20 months between Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City and Muncie. Um, only by the grace of God, training and, and wherewithal of, of, of the congregants did four people escape from a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. Um, we saw 
um, a horrific attack that was against the black community in Buffalo by a, a white supremacist who espoused violent, virulent, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, white replacement theory in a 180 page manifesto. Um, I think the, the current climate has um, been one where people are inspired to continue to do that. Uh, unfortunately, um, as we see in this individual's writings, uh, he was motivated and inspired by those that did it before him. Um, very specifically, the Christchurch shooter, um, the, the shooter in the Norway camp. We, we purposely subscribe to not naming names like our law enforcement partners to you know, not give notoriety to these, these, these lunatics. But I don't see things getting better. I see a collective responsibility for us to do all we can to protect and secure all communities. Um, and I think, you know, the Jewish community in SCN was just the beginning. We're doing a tremendous amount of work with our federal partners, DHS, FBI, um, paying it forward, being the convener of the broader faith-based and religious communities around this issue, um, because we have a joint and shared responsibility to, uh, you know, take care of one another and in the threat of uh, what is going to be persistence, violence, and evil. So what I heard what I heard is it's not going to get better, but but the uh, the uh, uh, the ability for you to create collegiality, communication networks is getting better as well. As as the violence increases and the risk becomes more dynamic and complex, as you just said, our abilities are all also uh, growing as well and leveraging as well. So there's hope. I think, I think there's hope. I think there's motivation. We are not going to sit on the sidelines of this fight. And I believe it is a fight. Um, and the reality is we can try and resolve, you know, the age old conversation of why people hate other people. Um, I think that's a much longer conversation. There's a lot of great work being there, but at the end of the day, we have a very acute threat. Um, and we need a layered approach to do that, whether it's protective intelligence, whether it is equipping people um, with training and know how to respond and get out, whether it's locking doors, there is a multi-layered system here required to um, you know, minimize and mitigate that risk. And uh, we have a collective obligation responsibility to do that, and we will. This has been a great conversation with Patrick Daly of the Security Community Network. Patrick, it has been great to have you. Always good to see you, my friend. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to talking in the future.